From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why IKEA and others are going climate positive, six electric aviation companies to watch, companies team up to solve the climate crisis, and why food waste is a terrible thing to waste. It's a full plate this week on 350. It's August 23rd, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Here with me from her perch in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather Clancy. Hello, Joel McCower. And how are you today? I am doing great. It's been a good week. Um, it's, uh, although I have to say, you know, whatever happened to slow Augusts, <laughs> I think we probably said that the last week or two anyway. Probably. But it's, it's, yeah. it's just crazy. I mean, all the way through, ironically, my most open week for the next six weeks is Labor Day week. So it's not when, you know, then after that, then it goes nuts again. But I've got this pretty open calendar and, and I'm sure... You know, if, if everyone in the company is listening in on this, which of course they are, um, that'll fill up in, in nanoseconds as soon as uh, this, <laughs> this podcast goes live. But, you know, it's, you know, we've got a lot happening. Um, uh, I know you're working really hard on Verge Vanguard. Uh, where, where are we on that? What's the story? When's the deadline? How's it going? Well, so the deadline is three days from now. Monday. Some of the stories and pref profiles are in already. I'm really happy to say. I'm thrilled. And it's just, I, I'm so excited about this group of pioneers. They're, they represent so many great new areas. And also, it's a great mix of, of diversity. We've got so many great um, people represented across all industries. So I'm, I'm thrilled to see all of this startup activity um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to mention who I'm interviewing, but, uh, because it'll be, it's a secret. <laughs> when's, when's the big reveal? The big reveal is, is just before climate week, the week before September 16th. So watch for it. Yeah, so this is the um, 20 people that we honor every year that reflect the pioneering spirit of the technology and sustainability convergence that we call Verge. And so we'll, these Verge Vanguard award winners coming out, what'd you say, May, uh, September? September 16th, uh, cutting edge people in carbon removal, energy and transportation and the circular economy. So our four Verge really focus areas. So stay tuned. And you, and you mentioned Climate Week and uh, uh, we'll both be there. I'll be in and out of New York because we have a Green Biz Executive Network meeting in the middle of that week, uh, just up the street in Hartford, Connecticut. But um, yeah, I'm going to be there and engage in a number of things. Uh, how about you? What, what are you doing? Well, uh, so Climate Week, I'm actually hoping to go to an AI and Sustainable Development Summit, believe it or not. I don't know if you saw that on the schedule. It's actually on Saturday. Not so thrilled about the Saturday, <laughs> but uh, hoping to do that. I will be at the, there's a Bloomberg Business Leaders event tied also to the activity that week. Um, some great Updates coming from the EP100. I can't say what, but uh, I will be watching what's going on there. Pretty important stuff. 
Well, I'm going to be coming to that from the uh, World Economic Forum Sustainable Development Impact Summit, where I'll be um, facilitating, uh, I think, a couple sessions still being worked out. I did that last year. A really interesting event. I think it's only in its third year, but this is becoming one of the uh, really interesting uh, brainstorming and big think kinds of events during Climate Week. So that'll be taking place on the 23rd and 24th of September. And then, uh, and then on Friday of that week, I come back from Hartford, back to New York, and I'll be uh, hosting and, and facilitating and uh, emceeing, I guess, a um, aviation sustainability summit that's uh, hosted by the New York, New Jersey Port Authority and um, United Airlines, and uh, which is really a continuation of a very similar, at least f uh, similar themed event that I um, I hosted and moderated at the Global Climate. GCAST, Global Climate Action Summit, in San Francisco last September. So I seem to be um, on the aviation beat, which is just becoming more and more interested. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a minute. In fact, let's do it now. Let's move on to the Week in Review. So speaking of aviation, I like to call it Project Runway. We had a great piece by a relatively new contributor, Shane Downing, uh, this week on six electric aviation companies to watch. And uh, this has been a theme that's uh, been ongoing for a while, the electrification of aviation. And it's one of those things that seemed, okay, sure, some days ba someday batteries will power planes and won't that be fun but it's sort of a you know science experiment that's kind of far off well guess what i mean this stuff is much further along and um, there's more than six electric aviation companies to watch there's a bunch of them but but uh, shane profiles six of them and uh most of this in fact pretty much all of it is for short haul or even medium haul flights uh under 500 miles which is uh you know, about half of the flights, at least uh, in the United States, uh, and I think maybe globally, actually, it's that is about 45% of all flights are under 500 miles. And so these regional, called middle-mile electric aviation uh, planes, they're, they're coming on fast. So I, I really enjoyed reading about some of these. Did you have a chance? Because I have a couple favorites here. I, I have some favorites. I did edit this piece. I actually assigned this piece. Nice. Um, yes. And he's he's terrific uh, new writer for us. I'm thrilled um, with his first piece. But I, one of my favorites was Magnix. Um, and that's because they're doing retrofits. So that, that they're, they're helping replace conventional engines in, with electric engines. So that one was one that, that struck my attention, especially because, you know, I, I always think about all of these great goals. And, and of course, we have so much equipment out there. And, and you know, I'm, how often do you replace a plane, right? So I, I thought that that was a particularly compelling entry on this list uh, that has a range of about 100 miles. So yeah, Totally, um, you know, a lot of these are short haul. These are all mainly short haul flights. Um, although it was interesting to me, a statistic I didn't know was that roughly 45% of global flights are under 500 miles. So, I, you know, I think a lot of people, when they think about electric planes, they get hung up on the whole cross Atlantic or cross, you know, country sort of trips that many of us have to take. It's range anxiety, just right. Like with it's, cars. it's it definitely is range anxiety. Um, so Magnix was was for sure one of my um, one of the ones that I thought was interesting. Um, I'll let you go first, and I, I do have one other I'll mention in a moment. 
Well, I picked two, uh, and one of them was Magnix, and the other was Amp Air. Uh, and, and for a similar reason, um, in, in that it's, uh, it's, it's not a pure electric plane. It's actually a hybrid. It's kind of a Prius of, of planes. I'm sure they don't call it that. It's called the Electric Eel, E-E-L. Um, and this is a L.A.-based company that's uh, converting six-seat Cessna, a certain model, with two engines that work in tandem. There's a conventional combustion engine and an electric motor powered by a battery pack, um, very much like you, you have in a, in a Prius um, or uh, any other hybrid. And it, it can has a range of 200 miles, so twice the one that you're looking at. Uh, and uh, apparently with a fuel consumption reduction uh, up to 90% and, uh, and a maintenance cost reduction of up to 50%. So I like this in the same reason that you like the retrofit is that this is a, a stair step into uh, an electric aviation future. It's a way of getting more planes electrified and uh, again, with 70 to 90% uh, fuel consumption reduction, uh, we could make a big dent in aviation impact uh, pretty quickly. I mean, the aviation impact is not... Uh, it's not nothing. Uh, I, there's some statistic, and I don't have it at my fingertips here. I wish I did, because it's. But it, it really basically says, in a sort of blunt instrument way, without having the actual numbers, that if you take all the electric vehicles that are coming online over the next, let's say, decade or so, and you think about all the environmental benefits of that, they will be more than wiped out by the uh, environmental impacts of the growth of aviation. So you know hold on to your bolts and your leafs and all that and your teslas and all that but but we got to fix the planes um and so this is really i think potentially a big deal mm -hmm. and magnix is based out of seattle but they started off in australia my second company you want to hear it i do okay by aerospace and what i liked about this denver company is that they're focusing on pilot training so if you think about it I believe, I, you know, and again, I'm not going to have the statistic here, but I'm, I've heard and read recently that, you know, we need more pilots, um, that, that people are not necessarily coming in. And plus, P.S., if you want to actually fly a plane, it costs a lot of money uh, to, to get the flight time. It's, um, in this particular story, uh, Shane notes that it could be $150,000, right, to get your, the flight time that you need to get your pilot's license. So what Bi Aerospace is doing is they've created two passenger and four passenger electric planes that are being focused on the pilot training marketplace. It costs $3 per hour to fly one of these guys as opposed to the $50 per hour it typically costs to fuel a traditional training aircraft. So wow. big difference, right? So you could you could potentially get up in the air, get your hours logged and so forth. So it's a very unique um, really focused approach. I loved this this yeah. mission. Um, well, more on aviation to come. Well, but, who was uh, your number two? Um, oh. Well, I told you I had Magnix as 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 one and two. Magnix and and um, Ampere. So ah, you, right, right. you 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 stole you stole it from me. <laughs> I stole it from you. But let's move on uh, to another story that I think is is really interesting, and it's actually. One of a few stories that we're, we, we've been looking at and, and working on and publishing around, depending on the term you use, climate positive, uh, carbon positive, negative emissions. We need to get the language straight, but this is basically about companies that are drawing down uh, more carbon than they're emitting. And this is a piece called Why IKEA and Others Are Going Climate Positive by 
our resident chief uh, carbon analyst, Jim Giles. And he's talking about this move by a number of companies, small ones, uh, but particularly the, the, the size of IKEA, uh, very, very large, uh, 200,000 people, 400 stores, $43 billion in sales last year. And the, they've said that by 2030, our ambition is to reduce more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire IKEA value chain emits. So that includes their supply chain, I presume, where all their products come from, while, all, the, all at the same time while growing the IKEA business. So they want to grow uh, at the same time that they are, are uh, becoming climate positive. So that's the spirit of, of, I think, something really exciting going on here. And this is another one of these things, sort of like aviation, it seemed like, oh, that's a nice dream. Someday we'll, you know, companies will you know, reverse their climate impacts. Um, but this is happening now. And um, as you know, I wrote a piece and you wrote a piece this week. We both uh, covering this Stripe announcement. Stripe is this uh, tech company that uh, enables uh, online payments about the commitment they've made to invest uh, not just in offsets, which is something they've been doing for a few years, but in carbon removal technologies, even though they're not at all to scale and therefore not at all affordable, they know they're going to pay a lot of money, but they want to uh, help bring the cost down while they uh, reverse the impact of their own operations. Right. Well, listen up, because uh, I, I talked to Nori later in this episode about how they're hoping to make the carbon removal marketplace a lot uh, more price elastic, if you will, and more accessible, more scalable. So, so yeah, I was, I was looking at the Stripe thing as a it's just a fascinating um, example of a company that could be doing this and is looking for ways to do this more effectively. And I wouldn't be surprised if if uh, Nori, which is a startup based in Seattle, is talking to Stripe. I, uh, it was it was quite ironic during my conversation with the CEO Paul Gamble. He mentioned Stripe actually totally, and this was a week before the. Uh, before the announcement that Stripe made. And we were chatting about sort of the whole idea of making carbon removals as, as you know, buying the, buying the credits or trading the credits as easy as an online payment. And so that's what they're hoping to do um, more on them later. Um, but I, I want to go back to this climate positive story for a moment. I, I was reading, uh, you know, I thought uh, this could be a very local strategy, right? Because the other, one of the other great examples in, in, Jim's piece is Max Burger, which is, I've never heard of him, but, but because that's because I don't live in Sweden, where they are apparently a big um, Swedish restaurant chain, if you will. Um, and as the name implies, they make burgers. And so how they're addressing this is using only local beef um, to, to, to tr- you know, cut out the transport emissions. Um, and then also, actually, believe it or not, they're promoting items that don't contain red meat, um, which is kind of unique for a burger chain. They're funding uh, forestry projects in Africa, and so you know they're they're trying to they're using that terminology as well, and and sort of focused on that on that being the ambition, right? So I guess part of part of the the whole thing about climate positive or negative emissions is it's 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 setting forth your ambition and kind of putting a stake in the ground and saying this is what we're aiming for, um, rather than rather than an incremental kind of goal. It's a pretty ambitious term or phrase to use. And I guess how we define it will become more clear, at least I hope it will become more clear in the weeks and months and years to come. But, um, you know, I think 
you see a lot of companies setting these sort of ambitious long-term goals and then a lot of incremental goals along the way. So stay tuned. Yeah, and Max Burger is the largest uh, fast food chain in Sweden and also operates in some other countries, I think Kuwait and Egypt and, and um, Norway and some others. So uh, this is an interesting company that's, that's they're, they're actually caused uh, some of the first McDonald's in Sweden to close up. I think McDonald's hmm. later came back, but they've, they've been a fierce competitor. And so this is another way that they, they see competing. So They're not small um, either. Yeah. I mean, they have a decent run rate. So Yeah. Um, and then uh, sort of back on this theme of, of climate action, we ran a piece by Lisa Kingo, who is the uh, CEO and executive director of the United Nations Global Compact. We've had her at several of our events. She'll be back at Green Biz 20 next year in Phoenix. Um, and talking about the role of collective action, basically, f by companies on climate change. And um, now, this is a, a theme that's been around for a long time. All these companies coming together, we are still in, and all kinds of all kinds of climate collaborations. In fact, there's one called the Climate Collaborative that I've been involved with. It's from the natural foods industry, about three or 400 uh, companies doing that. But the UN Global Compact, along with a coalition of more than 20 other uh, business, civil society, and UN organizations launched a global campaign calling on business leaders to step up their climate ambitions by setting science-based targets. Um, not a new thing, science-based targets. We've written about it a lot. That's been around for a number of years, although it's gaining traction. But it's really just this notion of these coalitions coming together to do more together than any of them can do alone. I love that more of these organizations are striving to work together, um, partly because I I get a little conflicted about how many organizations they are. I mean, you just were mentioning that sort of laundry list. And I worry a little bit about, um, you know, how much a company can support, you know, how many organizations can it be part of, you know, on, this, on the other side, on the flip side, I do recognize that the more the more these companies speak together, uh, the more likely it is that the, if you will, unconverted will listen. Um, you know, but I do appreciate, especially this um, this particular alliance, because it's it, these are two really influential organizations, and I'm I'm happy to see, uh, and I'm hearing more. You know, fortunately, I'm hearing more from the companies that I'm interviewing that they are getting far more serious about how to figure out, um, you know, how to how to embed this into their operating principles. Um, you know, so I, I, I really love that, um, that people are talking and, and that company, you know, we saw that, that whole, what is it? The business round table. Um, we saw that, that letter get published this week by what, 200 CEOs, um, that basically saying, you know, we need to focus not on, on just on making money. We need to focus on these issues. And, and they, they put a stake in the, the ground. They didn't really talk about environmental issues, but, um, you know, definitely the, the, the sh tide is shifting. Yeah, from shareholder primacy espoused by uh, Milton Friedman in 1970, that you know, the, the social responsibility of companies is to make a profit for their shareholders. And that's uh, been the dogma for, well, 50 years now, 49 years, actually. And uh, that's starting to change. It'll be interesting to see how this commitment at the BRT, the Business Roundtable, is actually backed up uh, by changes in actions. But you mentioned this other uh, mashup this week, which I think is really important. I want to make sure we, we hit that a little harder, that uh, 
this week, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and the World Economic Forum signed a, a memorandum of understanding, an MOU, to collectively mobilize action on issues related to climate change, biodiversity, food systems, circular economy, including plastic waste, uh, mobility, and other environment and socially related sustainable development goals. And that's, um, you know, again, another big collaboration. And to your point, you know, there is some point I wonder that we do reach peak collaboration, uh, but for now, you know, these are these are just coming together. And the you know, the other side of that, Heather, is that we have companies saying there's just too many organizations. Can't they mm -hmm. all work together? And then there's yeah. just one thing to sign on to. And uh, we've heard that same thing with conferences. And that's why we've at our conferences we try to make them rallying points and convening points for lots of other organizations that have their events, as we do. Uh, so well in Phoenix with the yeah. WBCSD and the uh, UN Global Compact and others having their meetings in Phoenix. And so I think this is a this is actually a pretty big deal in a lot of ways, just coming together and showing what's possible. And again, showing what companies and organizations can do together that none of them can do alone. So yeah, this has been a big week for those kinds of mashups. And I think it's probably uh, on balance a, a very positive sign. We've been talking increasingly these days about food waste, the problem of a roughly a third of the food in the world never ending up uh, where it's needed, but going into waste streams. How do we deal with it? Uh, how do we prevent it? And uh, what's the impact on climate change and other things? Our summer editorial intern, Cyan Zhang, has been looking at this and did a project on this over the summer. It was published in July on food waste. She wrote about LeanPath, a technology company that's helping corporate kitchens measure and reduce food waste. Cyan joins me now. Hey, Cyan. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So what did you learn, for, first of all, about food waste? Well, quite a lot. I learned that um, it's a trillion-dollar global problem and one of the top contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. It's also common knowledge that households are the largest source of food waste, followed by uh, businesses. So we talk about the households, we talk about businesses, we talk about uh, supermarkets and restaurants, but what about what happens at the farm? Isn't that a problem, too? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, interesting that you asked that. A recent study by Santa Clara University shows actually it's a missing piece. Um, you know, farm-level food waste, the produce that's left in the field because they're not, maybe not cosmetically beautiful or are suited for grocery stores. And I recently chatted with Christine Mosley, founder of Full Harvest. It's a B2B marketplace that sells these farm-level, quote-unquote, ugly produce to food and beverage businesses at a discount. She is a partner on that study. Well, let's listen in to what Christine had to say. There's now 34% food loss at the farm level, which wasn't even included in the 40% food waste stat that's been known in the industry over the last couple of years. So therefore, that means that it's double what we previously thought. And from a supply opportunity, we have estimated close to about $20 billion or more worth of produce that is not currently being sold. So massive supply opportunity and, and demand opportunity. And that's where we come in as, at Full Harvest with the first B2B marketplace for ugly and surplus produce, connecting that supply that is being wasted but is perfectly edible to that demand opportunity with companies that don't need to care what produce looks like. 
So you mentioned the, you know, farm level food waste is double the level. Is that the biggest, most surprising finding? Is there any other, uh, you know, surprising takeaways from that study? I think um, a couple things. One is that through the research, figuring out that the farm food loss data was not even included in the previous 40% food waste stat was really shocking, especially that 40% of food waste has been found to be the number three contributor to climate change. So now including farm food loss, which is new data and large data, may mean that the contribution to climate change uh, with food waste is even larger than we had previously thought. So that was surprising. And then also just seeing that there are certain outliers and worse offenders within certain produce skews that um, have huge amounts of waste, things like romaine and celery, where if they, you know, for grocery stores have a heart program for celery hearts or romaine hearts, they're wasting more on the field level than they are harvesting and selling. So that was, that was surprising. What your company does, what, where do you see the innovation? Like what's your unique, say, value prop? We bring value in a few ways. Um, one, we are the first to bring this online process of purchasing for ugly and surplus produce online, so digitizing the produce supply chain. So with that comes a huge amount of value. We've saved our buyers up to 95% of their time with procurement. Instead of doing it over pen and paper, it's now traceable, helps with food safety, data, metrics, and everything's paperless and accurate, which is a huge improvement for the industry in general. And then it's direct from farms, so you're getting it faster and fresher, and it's not sitting in a warehouse for several days. So the, even though it might be cosmetically not perfect for a grocery store, it actually usually lasts longer, is, is fresher because it's direct. On top of that, we are saving money. So in general, we save companies anywhere from up to 10 to 30% off, depending on the item and the volume. You know, one of my passions is to help healthy food production become more affordable by utilizing ugly organic produce, essentially at the same cost as perfect looking conventional so that more companies can afford to use organic produce. And then the final thing is that we're bringing an amazing sustainability brand story to these brands, which is a huge thing right now for millennials and for the market in general, people are wanting and demanding sustainable products. And we are the most sustainable produce supplier out there. Um, because with their buying power through purchasing with us, they're essentially helping make a big dent in the food waste problem. So where do you see the potential of what you're doing uh, from a sustainability, economic, and social perspective? And not just your own company, but also food waste recovery technology in general. So in the ReFed report, they found from their study that if $10 billion was invested into food waste solutions, it would bring $100 billion of value to society. And that's because of the true cost accounting of, you know, solving food waste to the whole economy. And it's because it, you know, touches everything from improved water usage to energy usage to more efficient food supply. And ideally, as I said, we're focused on also trying to make healthy food products more affordable. So um, there's, a, there's a wide range of benefits that solving food waste does across health, across the environment and the economy at the same time. And finally, where do you see the market go in the near future? Say we talk again in two years, five years, you know, what story do you hope to be able to tell them? Our vision is a world where there's no food waste and 100% full harvest. So we're really trying to scale to a level where we can help growers sell 100% of all of their edible produce that they grow so that none is being wasted that could be consumed by humans.
that's really the vision we're working towards. And we also envision a digitized produce supply chain, which will significantly improve the industry as a whole, just being more food safe, more traceable, and having a lot more insights to drive their businesses further faster. So is anyone else paying attention to this uh, business opportunity beyond full harvest? I've been actually digging around on Refat's Food Waste Innovator database, which has um, been tracking a lot of these startups doing dealing with food waste recovery and prevention. I found several other startups preventing ugly produce from being discarded just because consumers are less likely to pick them up from grocery stores. So there's Ugly Juice, which basically make freshly pressed juice from those ugly fruits, very uh, very Bay Area. Uh, there's Imperfect Produce, which delivers imperfect fruits and veggies to consumers with 30 to 50 percent off. The most interesting finding for me personally was Ugly Apple Cafe. It's a food cart in Madison that I used to go to all the time when I was in college. Um, they actually make their farm fresh breakfast using surplus and ugly, ugly produce. I didn't even know that, but I go to there like all the time. Well, uh, there's a lot that you learn when you dig into food waste. Cyan Zhang is our summer editorial intern here at Green Biz. So thanks so much, Cyan. Thank you, Joel. Blockchain startup Nori first came to my attention last year when it started talking up what it bills as the first ever marketplace for trading carbon removal credits. Its value proposition got a lot more intriguing with the revelation last week that digital payments company Stripe will spend at least $1 million annually to fund verified removal projects rather than just buying traditional carbon offsets. Nori wants to make the process of buying carbon removal credits simpler and more credible for both buyers and sellers. That's where blockchain comes in. The company is using it to measure information about the removal projects, where they're located, and how they were verified. The idea is to let buyers and sellers trade more directly and hopefully eliminate some of the fraud concerns that have been recently raised about the existing carbon offset marketplace. I caught up with CEO Paul Gamble in early August when the company was selected for the Techstars Sustainability Accelerator run in collaboration with the Nature Conservancy. I started out by asking him why he thinks the carbon removal marketplace is ripe for disruption and how exactly the marketplace will work. Well, uh, it's interesting that you call it the carbon removal marketplace because there isn't one yet. So right now, when we look at the ways that people deal with greenhouse gas emissions, it's something like 98% or even more of all offsets or credits ever traded are carbon avoidant. And they're just uh, not emitting as much as they would have otherwise. But there's no one out there taking a seriously dedicated focus on drawing down and removing our past emissions. And so that's what we're trying to do and to create a real financial incentive for people to pull the CO2 out of the air that's already out there. You can think of Nori uh, in one way as like the eBay for carbon removal. So when people remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through different methods or means, uh, then they can get that verified in our market and then they will have certificates that they can sell to buyers who want to be responsible for paying for carbon removal. So in like a, in a real practical way, what this means is we're working with farmers today who are changing their farming practices. This means uh, planting cover crops and reducing the amount that they till their land. 
And that's actually pulling carbon dioxide out of the air and storing it in their soil as organic matter. And so these farmers are doing this, and then they can get that verified through the Norian Marketplace, and then we'll issue carbon removal certificates to them. And they can sell those certificates to companies that want to offset their emissions for their uh, for both voluntary or compliance reasons. So on the voluntary side, companies are being pushed by their employees and their shareholders to deal with their carbon footprint. And there are many, many companies, all large corporations, already today that are uh, going carbon neutral. They're they're buying offsets, and they're they're doing that to avoid the emissions from their operations. But they're buying offsets. They're not buying carbon removal because they can't because there's no one offering that to them. And so that's what our market is uh, serving the need for is for the sustainability directors that are out there saying, look, we. We want to remove carbon from the atmosphere, not just avoid new emissions. Let me, let me give you an analogy. We think of carbon dioxide uh, emissions like a garbage problem. We've been throwing garbage out on our streets by emitting the CO2 up into the air. We've been doing this for decades, over, over a century now. And if you think of garbage, right now, we all, if you're living in the U.S., you uh, probably pay a municipal garbage collector to come around weekly and pick up your garbage from you, and then they go store it responsibly in a landfill somewhere. Um, or maybe they recycle some of it and some new value comes out of it. Nori is like that garbage collector. We're the way for people to remove the CO2 that they've emitted and then create new value from it. Because like those farmers that I mentioned who are removing CO2 and storing it in their soils, that's actually really improving the health and quality of their soils and improves the quality of the food that they grow. I also asked Paul to address which industry sectors Nori is targeting and how the marketplace might be used by a large company, aka a carbon removal buyer. Here's more on how corporate sustainability professionals might use the Nori approach, as well as how the system accounts for the credits that companies buy. So for companies in the food and ag industry, and we're talking to many of them, they want their farmers to transition to these practices. And it's not just for their carbon storage, it's also because it's an investment in their supply chain so that they can continue, can continue to grow food in 50 years. It's also so that they could potentially put a regeneratively grown label on their food, sort of like organic. They, they want their farmers to do this, and they want to be able to verify uh, that they're doing this. And so they need some sort of tool to do that certification. And the big food companies have been struggling to uh, create um, something that's scalable to do that so that their suppliers uh, can easily participate. So that's the problem that Nori solves for the food industry. When we're talking about other industries, um, whether that's transportation or technology or, or anything else in between, really. The way that that typically works is a sustainability director uh, goes through a procurement process um, annually and calls up uh, one of the brokers that they might know uh, to buy carbon offsets, and they say, hey, what projects do you know about? And then the broker might connect them. They might do some diligence. It might take months. It might not. Um, but it, it's a very like, custom process for them to do. And so what we're trying to turn this into is a one-stop e-commerce shop so that anyone who needs to procure carbon removals can just show up to the Nori platform and easily pay for carbon removal that has happened. 
and then they can see all of the details about how it was removed. So uh, where the farmer was located, uh, how it was measured and verified, um, all this data is uh, stored and recorded transparently on the blockchain forever so that there's no doubt about who paid for what and how it happened. When a supplier, a farmer in our market, sells one of these carbon removal certificates to a buyer, it's immediately retired in the buyer's account, meaning the buyer cannot resell it. Now, this is different from current carbon markets because today, if you're a project developer and you, you're issued uh, offset credits and you go sell those, um, you might sell them to a broker, who might sell them to another broker, and who might sell it to a retail company who might decide that they want to resell it again. And so it's getting sold multiple times. And when you look at the uh, market activity and the trading volume of these, each one of those sales is counted along the way. But it's still only representing the same ton of carbon dioxide that was avoided. So that's double counting, triple counting, quadruple counting, um, just because of the way that they do the market activity. So in our, what we're doing differently is that we're saying that the certificate, when it's sold, is immediately retired so that that one ton of carbon dioxide is only counted once. But when the buyer pays the farmer for storing carbon in their soil, they're paying them using the Nori token. And that token can be freely traded uh, many times over. Uh, it'll circulate around the economy. And that's the thing that people that want to trade this commodity should be trading. So that way we're, we're solving the problem of double counting and bringing liquidity and price discovery into the carbon removal market. Nori is currently working on a proof-of-concept demo transaction representing 10,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide. Gamble hopes to launch the actual market in early 2020, and its work in Techstars is focused on building the relationships to do just that. While Nori hasn't disclosed any early customers, the startup is in conversations with tech firms, transportation companies, and of course, food and agricultural concerns that might come in as buyers. And even though the startup is still very much in its infancy, I wanted to end this segment with a peek into the future and how this might scale, and why Nori is very much open to partnership ideas. The, the thing I always like bringing up is talking about the future vision for where we're trying to take this. Like, we're not just trying to build a better offsets market for corporations. Um, if, if we were doing that, it, it, it wouldn't be that interesting to me, and I don't think we would really be moving the needle on how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere. What we're really trying to do is build something sort of like Stripe for carbon removal payments. So in the future, the Nori API is going to be able to be plugged into any sort of application or, um, or software platform so that carbon removal payments just happen automatically. So imagine you take a rideshare ride, and at the end of the ride, you watch uh, in the app, you watch a little ad from a company, and in the background, that company is automatically, in real time, paying for removing the emissions that you just emitted from the car drive that you just took. Or think of ordering a product on Amazon, and Amazon knows like where the item is, they know how it's gonna get shipped to you, so they know uh, about how much carbon emissions are gonna be emitted in the process of getting that product to your door. So in real time, 
Amazon could connect to the Nori API and pay for removing those emissions so that you have a truly carbon neutral product purchase. So that's the, that's the, uh, the future of where we're trying to take this so that this will get distributed into it. Um, we're, it's like we're building an app store for carbon removal and we're not, we don't even know uh, how people might use this in the future, but we, we know that's gonna help scale to a much larger scale than carbon offsets are currently at today. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this week's episode. While you're there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. And while you're checking out stuff, make sure you're checking out our newsletters. We publish a different one every day, Monday through Friday. Five weekly newsletters in all. Heather has one on Wednesdays. I have one on Mondays and three others uh, that you'll check out if you just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.